Welcome to the Public Morality. This year marks the 50th anniversary of America's war on drugs. Former President Richard Nixon declared drug abuse public enemy number one, joining the likes of John Dillinger, Babyface Nelson, and Pretty Boy Floyd. But unlike these Depression-era desperados, the war on drugs continues to outwit its pursuers. Over the decades, the United States spent hundreds of billions to incarcerate millions of mostly black and brown Americans, which led to the need to build more jails and prisons. Congress created new bureaucracies and passed laws provided additional resources to federal, state, and local agencies. But 50 years later, none of this seems to have had any difference, as illegal drug use has not declined but increased. Moreover, overdoses has spiked to record levels. Joining me to discuss the war on drugs is John Hudak. Hudak is Deputy Director for Effective Public Management and Senior Fellow at the Brookings Institution. He recently wrote a piece for the Brookings site entitled, Biden Should End America's Longest War, The War on Drugs. John Hudak, welcome to The Public Morality. It's great to be back, Byron. Uh, you write in your piece uh, on the Brookings site, the war on drugs, uh, not the war in Afghanistan, is America's longest war. What uh, is the war on drugs, and how long has it been in existence? Well, the war on drugs is hard to define uh, specifically, but we know a lot of elements of it. Uh, in the United States, uh, and really this has been a, a world war, um, this is a lot of countries uh, coming together to fight what they see as a scourge, an enemy, uh, that being uh, drugs, drug use, and drug users. Uh, and in the United States, this has been an effort that has been done domestically. It's been done internationally. Uh, this is an effort that has focused on international actors on domestic soil, domestic actors on international soil, and every combination that you could imagine. But it, what it has been is a long, sustained, expensive, militarized effort to try to root drugs out of society and in the process has found victims among not just narco traffickers but the biggest victims have really been everyday users or everyday individuals in possession of a substance you know i, I was surprised in preparation for our conversation that uh, in the 1890s um you could purchase through the Sears catalog, which I guess was the Amazon Prime of the 19th century, um, a syringe along with small amounts of cocaine. So we've gone from legalization to complete prohibition, and the problem seems to have gotten worse. How do you account for that? Well, you know, in the 1800s, in the 17 and 1800s, it wasn't just the ability to purchase substances like cocaine or morphine, uh, but... Uh, cannabis. Uh, cannabis was uh, used as a medical substance throughout most of uh, the country's history up until the beginning of the 20th century. Uh, and this was a combination of a more hands-off approach, uh, a more libertarian approach, if you will, about how we treat substances. But it's also important to recognize this was also based because we had primitive means of understanding medicine at that time, understanding the harms and the benefits of substances. And so there's a lot of things that we don't use in medicine anymore. There's a lot of things we do use in medicine. And so simply the availability 
early on, I don't think is necessarily a signal of whether something is harmful or harmless. Uh, but it shows that uh, in the 1800s, uh, we weren't throwing people in jail for having these substances. That's a more modern phenomenon, and it's led to a real criminal state in the United States. Now, depending on the political ideology uh, of the politician, one is apt to hear in, in, in our contemporary discourse about the failures uh, of, of the war on poverty, the, the, the Johnson programs, less so about the war on drugs. Is the war on drugs essentially a third rail that we just cannot touch, or has it been prolonged to the point that it no longer appears to be uh, in the political consciousness? Well, I, I think for a long time it was a third rail in American politics that was just uh, beyond reproach. If you talked openly and negatively about the war on drugs, you were seen as weak on crime or soft on crime, pro-criminal. Um, and we know, of course, that that language is dog whistle politics as well. Uh, and, uh, and so it was something that terrified members of Congress, state legislators, presidents and presidential candidates, governors, and, and every elected official you could imagine. And so that, that created uh, a, a, a two-pronged approach. One, we didn't have political elites criticizing what was a, a very obviously failed war. Um, but two, it, it began to, it, as you suggested in your question, start to shrink away from our consciousness. It was just part of American society and part of American policy and if you're not going to criticize it, then most Americans are going to think there's nothing wrong with it. And so it normalized the war on drugs very quickly. So, so I mean, just the very term itself, uh, the, the war on drugs, it, you know, feels like a term whose definition is left largely to whoever is is pose, you're posing the question to. And, and so do we have a collective understanding as to um, who and what the war on drugs is today? I know you you gave one initially, but, but is that our understanding? What the answer you gave earlier is that our understanding today? Yeah, it, it remains our understanding today of of what those operations look like. Now, granted, in uh, modern society, meaning very modern, current, uh, contemporary uh, policy, we have a situation in which there's a war on the war on drugs. Uh, where there is this pushback at the state level, at the local level, internationally, and even among members of Congress and presidential candidates to say, listen, we need to do something differently than we have been doing. But you still see uh, the United States government treating uh, drug use as a crime and not a public health issue. You see the US government uh, criminalizing across the board uh, the use of substances that we've simultaneously recognized as a public health crisis, like the opioid epidemic. Uh, and United States policy for a long time, and it continues, operates along the understanding that you can arrest your way out of a drug epidemic. Or if you can ring up enough of drugs, uh, the, I'm sorry, ring up enough of arrests, you can demonstrate that there's a drug epidemic. Now, we all know there's an opioid epidemic. Uh, arresting our way out of it has not worked and will not work. Uh, but we don't really have a cannabis use epidemic. But I'll tell you that the federal government and state governments are doing a hell of a job trying to arrest their way um, uh, out of this imaginary cannabis epidemic. And it leads to hundreds of thousands of arrests a year. And so, yeah, I think 
Uh, the way that the drug war was perpetrated in the 1960s and 1970s and 1980s looks a lot like it is today. Just what's happening today is there's this pushback against that. Mm. When I when I personally when I hear the war on drugs, I mean I, I'm thinking of someone like say I'm using this metaphorically Pablo Escobar. Now we're gonna Emmanuel uh, Noriega. We're gonna go after them and, and and stop them from bringing illegal drugs uh, in, in, into the country. I'm not thinking about the guy who has a substance abuse problem uh, in say Camden, New Jersey. Um, no offense to Camden, but it's the person who has a drug abuse problem in Camden, New Jersey, or or Frankfort, Kentucky, uh, is more likely to be the victim of these pernicious policies than the Pablo Escobars of the world. Would that be fair? I, I think it is. I mean, certainly the U.S. government has gone after drug lords in Mexico and Colombia and other parts of Latin America and other parts of the world as well. Um, and the efforts uh, to ring them up on serious charges uh, the desire to imprison them for life um, is real in American law enforcement. But but you're right, for every Pablo Escobar, there's a couple of hundred thousand uh, typically young men of color in places like Camden, in places like the south side of Chicago and southeast D.C., um, you know, above the 120s in Manhattan or across the river in the Bronx. Um, they're the they're the people who the federal government and state and local governments are going after after in droves. They're the ones who are carrying the real burden of the drug war on their back as they're being incarcerated and their lives are being disrupted, not because they're moving product uh, like Pablo Escobar did, um, but because they have a couple of joints on them when they face a stop and frisk or they're found smoking a joint uh, in uh, a you know in a public park, they're the ones shouldering the majority of the uh, the the blame and the impact of the war on drugs. I mean, one of the unique aspects, I mean, you might you might you could probably argue there's other policies, but one of the unique aspects to me about the war on drugs is that every level can tout. Uh, some contribution at the federal level, at the state level, at the local level. So it just sort of perpetuates uh, this sort of tough on crime policy that you've been talking about, that each level gets to say, I'm participating, ergo, I champion the war on drugs. Would that be accurate? Byron, it's completely accurate. You know, we've never had in our country such a coordinated war effort uh, as we have with the war on drugs. When you think about foreign wars, you know, you didn't have the state of Alabama deciding that they were going to institute a draft in their own state and then separately send troops to the front in Europe. Um, you know, we didn't have the state of Idaho separately sending troops over to Vietnam. It's a federal effort. The, the war is run by the United States military. Uh, and yes, uh, you know, National Guard uh, 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 units from states are involved in this. Uh, but the reality is the decentralized nature of law enforcement in this country is vastly different than the centralized nature of the military in this country. And so what you have for the war on drugs that you don't have for international wars, traditional wars, is this concentrated um, uh, effort at every level of government that is sometimes autonomous, sometimes coordinated, but all focused on the same types of behaviors and all focused on the same outcomes. And that typically is arresting as many people as is humanly possible, 
uh, injecting bias into the way that that law enforcement operates and then letting the chips fall where they may and patting themselves on the back when they get to take some pictures in front of the drugs that they uh, seized that day. Hmm. I, mean, I, mean, I mean, to that end, um, if in fact, um, as President Nixon declared in 1971, that the, the, the war was against drug abuse, why is it practically every method to combat uh, this particular war on drugs rivals treatment that we would associate in a conventional theater of war? If drug abuse is the issue. Well, because we had presidents and President Nixon was among them. President Johnson was among them. We've had Democrats and Republicans who have recognized that when you are talking to families, when you're talking to the American public about the war on drugs, a lot of people know someone who's had a substance use disorder. Uh, and if you talk about the war on drug use, you then put it into a uh, means or you put it on a plate that people can consume easier. If you're constantly talking about international drug cartels, that's something that's, you know, uh, somewhere else in Americans' minds. It's not right there in their living room. And it also plays a little bit better because you're not you're you're feigning as an as a leader that you're actually concerned with helping people. If we actually had a war on drug abuse in this country, we would focus on public health issues. But instead, we focus on public safety issues. We focus on the law enforcement means of getting our way out of it. And so whenever you hear a president in the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s talk about the war on drug abuse, they're lying. It's the war on the drug user. And that is who the federal, state, and local governments and law enforcement agencies are going after. I'm speaking with John Hudak, senior fellow at the Brookings Institution, and we're discussing uh, the 50th anniversary, uh, unofficially, of the war on drugs. Hudak recently wrote a piece for the Brookings uh, site entitled, Biden Should End America's Longest War, The War on Drugs. So, John, you, you, you also write that the United States has spent trillions at the federal, state, and local levels for which has essentially railroaded people's futures, especially among black, Latino, and Native populations. Could you take a moment to explain how the war on drugs has achieved that particular outcome? Well, a lot of money, as you noted, has been has been pumped into this effort and tax money at every level of government um, has been. And when we look at uh, the trends in terms of drug use, um, the availability of drugs, et cetera, over time, they really don't uh, decrease in any way as you increase law enforcement dollars. And so in most federal programs uh, or, or state or local programs, if you were constantly money at something and it was having the opposite of impact that you wanted, you'd take a step back. You would evaluate it. You would think about what can we do better? What are we doing wrong? Uh, and how do we do this differently? That's never been the case with the war on drugs until you started to see state level efforts to legalize uh, things like cannabis. Uh, and so uh, it, it really it puts us in a position where we have to recognize drug policy in the United States as something entirely different, as something that is not so much focused on the stated public policy goals, but on something else. And when we look at where drug enforcement is focused, 
as you noted in your question, it is disproportionately among Black, Latino, and Native populations. It disproportionately affects those groups versus whites. It disproportionately affects the poor versus the rich. It's uh, disproportionately concentrated in urban areas rather than rural areas. Uh, and that is when you start to see what the real effort in the drug war is, the real focus of the drug war. Because if that is the standard, the war on drugs has been wildly successful because it has put millions of young uh, people of color in prison over the years, or given that even if they're not imprisoned, given them arrest records that follow them along for the rest of their lives. By that metric, which is an appalling metric, the war on drugs is hugely successful and it makes sense to keep pouring money in it because it's doing a really good job of, of that. Well, if the metric was the stated one, it's failed. Well, well, given given what you, you in the last part of that answer, um, if if the face of the war on drugs, what comes to people's minds, is a young male person of color, um, is that how we can justify what is uh, based on um, your article and others that I've read uh, a a very large waste of resources? Yeah, and, and for decades. Uh, that was the explicit face of, of the war on drugs, of who we were going after. And for white America, that was just fine. For white suburban and rural America, the idea uh, that there were um, black and Latino uh, men typically coming into your communities and, and giving your kids drugs, that was scary. Um, and that race baiting in public policy was explicit and purposeful. I write about it in my book, Marijuana, A Short History, about how you had officials at every level of government saying this specifically, and in you know the 1930s and 40s, saying it in horrendously racist terms. Uh, now it's a little more sugar-coated, but it's, it's the same idea. What we're seeing now, though, is a bit of a pushback. In the past 20 years, we're starting to see a pushback, understanding that drug use between whites and non-whites is about even. Um, and so the idea that the only people in our society who are doing drugs or dealing drugs or, or you know, have substance use disorders or people of color is really beginning to fade away. But for a lot of Americans, it's hard to break out of a mindset that has been institutionalized by government for decades that these are the scary people who do drugs, and this is why we need to put them in jail. Hmm. Does, does that mean we're at... Um... Are we coming to an inflection point or uh, how do you see that? I'd like to have that kind of faith that we're coming to that inflection point. But I, I think in the environment that we're in right now, uh, what we're seeing happening uh, with race relations in this country, uh, what, we're, what we saw happen during the Obama administration uh, with you know vitriol toward a black president, um, what we saw during the Trump administration, where a president was stoking uh, xenophobic views, uh, we, I, I don't have faith that we're at an inflection point. What I will say, the, the ray of hope, I will say, is that I think some number of minds are changing. There are some uh, groups of individuals, non-trivial numbers of people, that are thinking about drug policy in different ways. Young people more more so than others, but we we also see data that minds are changing about these issues, about race relations, about policing, about uh, drug policy, even among uh, white voters in their you know 30s, 40s, 50s, and so that gives me hope. 
Uh, but I don't think as a society we're uh, close enough yet to say we're, we're turning that corner. Uh, one of the similarities, um, and I was thinking about this based on the piece that you wrote in the, in, in, on the Brookings site, one of the similarities about the war in Afghanistan and um, the war on drugs, in my view, is that both lingered in perpetuity to the point that they were no longer discussed. Uh, until we didn't really discuss Afghanistan until President Biden decided to withdraw troops. Um, So with that said, suppose President Biden declared that it was time to go in a different direction um, on the so-called war on drugs. What do you imagine the pushback would be? Would there be pushback? So I I think we see that kind of pushback at the state level when uh, you uh, have ballot initiatives or legislatures that are looking to legalize cannabis. You have all of the same tropes of, well, drugs are going to end up in our schools as if drugs are not all, as if cannabis is not already in our schools. Uh, that you know, drug use is going to go through the roof. That uh, people are going to be using cannabis and causing fatal accidents all over the place. And and all of these same scary kinds of the cartels will come in and control the legal market. All, all of the all of the nonsensical um, arguments. Uh, and, and so there, there is that pushback uh, for sure. But we're seeing less and less of it as states legalize. We're seeing the majorities that are passing that legislation um, higher in a lot of states as time goes on. And so uh, I think people are falling for those tropes uh, less and less. But what I will tell you is one of the other, uh, two of the other rather comparisons Uh, that I see uh, for the war in Afghanistan and and the war on drugs. Um, First is, and you alluded to this in your question, both were seen as someone else's war, a war on uh, that really didn't affect us. And and most Americans, the war in Afghanistan, unless they were family members of servicemen or or servicemen and women themselves, um, weren't directly affected. Uh, Most people are not arrested for drugs in a given year. So it's, it's someone else. But I'll go a step further. The, the people who the war on drugs are fighting against, I think a lot of Americans view in the same way that they view the Taliban. They see them as dangers to our society. Uh, they see them as a threat to their communities specifically. They group, there are plenty of people in this country who group drug users, not traffickers, drug users in the same way that they group terrorists. And I think that's a really serious problem. And it's part of the foundation about how we've gotten to where we are. Again, I'm speaking with John Hudak, senior fellow of the Brookings Institution, and we're discussing the 50th anniversary on the war on drugs. John, in your view, is there a relationship between the war on drugs and the now controversial 1994 crime bill? Oh, absolutely. The 1994 crime bill was part of the war on drugs. Um, When we look back historically at laws, um, we have a lot of signature landmark pieces of legislation uh, in the war on drugs. Uh, You know, the 1937 Marijuana Tax Act, the 1970 Controlled Substances Act, uh, the uh, uh, Crime Acts in uh, 1986 and 1988. And then we get to the Crime Bill of 1994, uh, a bill that imposed much harsher penalties Uh, for a variety of different drug-related crimes contributed to the types of disparities that we have in punishments for certain types of substances that were oftentimes associated with uh, greater use in communities of color versus the drugs that were more commonly used in white communities. 
um, it helped add to a growing trend that really started in the 1980s of militarizing local and state police forces. Um, the 1994 crime bill was a tremendous effort in advancing the war on drugs in the 1990s that Democrats and Republicans alike, including the sitting president of the United States, um, uh, uh, should shoulder tremendous amounts of blame for. You know, you, you, you mentioned, you alluded to in your answer uh, about some of the um, sentencing disparities, say, for, for crack cocaine and powder cocaine, um, the subtext being that crack cocaine is predominantly, predominantly used by people of color and that the powder is used by whites, so the sentencing is lesser. But at the time, uh, uh, and, and this research was done by two of your colleagues at, at Brookings, uh, William uh, Galston and, and Rashawn Ray, um, 60% of African Americans, uh, according to Gallup, supported the crime bill. So, uh, don't we also have to factor? I'm not. I'm not. I don't want to sound like an apologist for it, but don't we also have to factor that there was some growing fear within these communities for these harsher penalties that we now look back in retrospect and say, "Ah, oh, this was racist." Yeah, you know, um, I, I have a lot of respect for my colleagues. I, I think one of the things, though, when, when we use polling like that, um, we really have to put that kind of polling into context. Yes, um, black and brown communities throughout the United States were uh, unhappy with rates of crime, rates of you know violent crime, drug crime, all kinds of crime that was uh, had been increasing for decades and really culminating in the 1980s and 1990s, and they wanted something to be done about it. But if you call, you know, if Gallup calls uh, a, a household on the phone and says, Congress is currently debating a bill before our Congress to address violent crime and drug crime in communities, do you support it? What are they going to say? They're going to say yes. But what, what typically falls apart in those surveys is to convey a full understanding to those uh, survey respondents of what is in that bill. And, and this can happen in both directions, right? We saw this with the Affordable Care Act. You call people and say, what do you think of Obamacare? What do you think of the Affordable Care Act? They'll say, I hate it. They say, well, what do you think about being able to keep your son or daughter on your insurance until they're 26? Well, I like that. What do you think of uh, insurance companies not discriminating for being a woman or having pre-existing conditions? Well, I like that. And when you break all of this apart, people actually ended up liking the Affordable Care Act. I think the crime bill was probably the reverse of that. If you actually went in and said to, uh, you know, a, a black woman respondent, um, do you think that crack cocaine should be penalized at a rate of 100 times higher than than powder cocaine? I bet they're probably not going to be thrilled about that. Um, and, and so if you if you actually broke that bill down, um, I, I would be curious to see whether that significant support would actually hold up. No, it seems, uh, and this this is in my view, that the drugs themselves have evolved at a rate that exceeds the policy. And I'm speaking specifically about uh, synthetic drugs like fentanyl, methamphetamine, which are more potent, uh, easier to produce. So this whole war on drugs feels to me like having an owner's manual... I don't know, to a 1971 Ford Country Squire. You're probably not old enough to know what that is. <laughs> and and really what you need is to repair a late model Tesla. <laughs> Your thoughts? No, I, I think that's a great comparison. Um, you know, my argument is not let's, 
legalize everything, let's scrap drug enforcement, drugs never cause any problems in our country. That's not my argument. Uh, drugs cause problems, substance use disorders are real. Um, they're real for uh, every substance from tobacco to cannabis to methamphetamine to uh, opioids. Um, but my argument is, uh, and, and it's what, what you mentioned in your question, the way we're doing it is failing and it has always failed. So do we keep doing the same thing, you know, the definition of insanity? Um, do we still use the, um, you know, 1971 uh, manual for an internal combustion engine to fix uh, a 2021 electric car? Or do we try something radically different and think about drug policy in a radically different way? And until we do that, we're just going to keep failing. We're just going to keep, uh, you know, trying to repair the uh, new car with the old men. Uh, on, on that line, it, the other the other piece, it seems to me, is that the, the war on drugs, as it was constructed, whether it was drug abuse or a, a, a drug uh, uh, importation, uh, was focused on illegal drugs. Does How does this now factor that, that a lot of the overdose and a lot of the addiction is um, prescription drugs, such as like OxyContin and others? Well, well, that's ex exactly the point here. Legal drugs in this country, whether they are uh, used properly or misused, um, create tremendous problems. Opioids are causing an epidemic. We don't talk enough about the epidemic that alcohol use and alcohol use disorders have caused in this country. We've had a decades-long conversation about tobacco, and our efforts to curb tobacco usage has uh, been fairly successful. Um, but you know, the way that we dealt with the tobacco epidemic in this country was not by arresting cigarette smokers. We took a public health approach to it. We took an economic approach to it. And we drastically reduced uh, the number of tobacco users. And then over time, we'll see decreases in the number of tobacco-related deaths in this country. You're right. When we think about the war on drugs, the war on drugs typically leave separate certain categories of substances that we know are dramatically more harmful uh, than, than other substances. And so we're just starting to get to the point where we are recognizing better ways to deal with the opioid crisis. And most, for the most part, the opioid crisis in this country is not illegal heroin users. There are individuals who are using prescription drugs that are either properly prescribed to that individual or properly prescribed to another individual who then distributes it on a black market. Uh, and so until we think about broader drug policy in the ways that we've thought about tobacco, in the ways that we're beginning to think about opioids, uh, it's it, it, we're, we're going to keep failing. And, and one last point I'll make here, you know, I do a lot of work on cannabis legalization policy and uh, a lot of the campaigns in the states, some of your listeners, I'm sure, have voted on these ballot initiatives. A lot of times the ballot initiatives are called uh, uh, a, 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 an amendment or an initiative to regulate cannabis like alcohol. And my argument is always, absolutely not. Do not regulate cannabis like alcohol. Regulate it better than alcohol. The way we regulate alcohol in this country is a disgrace. Regulate it better than alcohol, because if that is our baseline, we know what alcohol does in this country, and it isn't pretty. I mean, some of this goes back to the, the previous conversation we were having, that the face we associate with illegal drugs 
It's not the same face that we associate with prescription drugs. And I don't think anyone can deny the punishment for those uh, trafficking prescription drugs is far less punitive uh, than those arrested for illegal drugs. Do, Do we have to have some balance there as well? We do, and, and you're spot on with that. The, the face of cannabis use is a black man, a black or Latino man. We know that. The face of a crack user um, is a black man. Uh, the face of uh, an opioid user for a long time was a heroin addict, which was also typically some some poor, quote unquote, junkie, um, oftentimes a person of color. But it wasn't until the opioid crisis became a pill crisis and that pill crisis moved into the suburbs that we started to say, well, let's not treat this like the war on drugs. Let's treat this as a health issue. Because now it's our upper middle class sons and daughters who are subject to this and not a kid in Southeast DC. Well, I mean, well, then if, if, if we're gonna do that, then, we, then shouldn't we be honest and say that the, the war on drugs uh, really belies reality and that it's really a war on low income people of color and it always has been? Absolutely. And it always has been. And it's funny how we can make adjustments to our policy when it when the policies are failing white America. But as a society, as a government, we refuse to adjust those policies when those policies fail black and brown America. And I think we really need to think uh, long and hard about not only what adjustments to policy that we make, but think long and hard about uh, who we're leaving behind when we're not making the proper adjustments to policy. And the war on drugs is ground zero for those kinds of questions. Mm. No, no, no. In fairness, um, some of the punitive laws, I mean, have been rolled back. I mean, there have been some rollbacks on some of the mandatory sentencing for nonviolent offenses. Uh, many states, as you alluded, have, have placed uh, initiatives that, that have legalized marijuana. Um, what should be some of the next steps in your view to, to really change the direction of, of the current policy? I think we need to think clearly about broader criminal justice reform and that broad criminal justice re- reform starts with drug reform. We need to think about the ways in which we deal with uh, individuals who are formerly incarcerated uh, and what types of opportunities we can afford them, how long we are going to continue to let them uh, be punished by prior bad acts, especially for uh, you know low-level drug user, uh, drug uh, offenders, for nonviolent criminals. Uh, we need to think holistically about how uh, criminalization in the United States operates, and also what incentives there are for criminalization. We know that the privatization of prisons has created an entire complex in this country where it is in the interest of large corporations to pressure government to incarcerate as many people as possible. And until we start to look at this system holistically, but also drill down into the particular incentives that state governments, local governments, and even the federal government has uh, to make the choices over its policy, we're going to continue to be lost. We've seen this, as you mentioned, in a small scale way with cannabis reform at the state level, uh, with changes in the disparities between uh, powder and crack cocaine uh, at at the federal level. Uh, those are good steps in the right direction, um, but it, those are, that's all they are, steps in the right direction. They are not uh, the solution to this problem, and the solution will be piecemeal, uh, but this is something that could fill the plate of the United States Congress for an entire session. 
um, if they thought seriously about addressing this. Well, I, I just heard you say, um, we talked earlier about this essentially being a war on low-income people of color. Now I just heard you add to the equation there's an um, economic incentive for some to maintain the status quo. Absolutely. There's a, a, an economic incentive for private prisons to do this. Um, there's an economic incentive for the communities in which private prisons operate because they are huge employers uh, within those communities. Uh, there are incentives uh, across the board in law enforcement at every level to make sure that they continue to get the funding uh, that they depend on every year. And a huge part of the basis for that funding tends to be the drug war. And so everywhere we turn, uh, there are pressures on government officials uh, to perpetuate the status quo. And the hardest thing to break in American politics is an economic incentive to maintain the status quo. It's a, it's a huge reason why it took so long for healthcare reform to be passed. Um, it's a huge reason why we haven't comprehensively addressed uh, criminal justice reform, police reform, et cetera, in this country as well. So if you have a policy that has an economic incentive buttressed by the face of that policy being a group that, uh, let's just say, people are lukewarm to uh, empathizing with, um, those two things alone suggest that this policy uh, can exist in perpetuity as it is. I think you're right. I, I think when we look at a, a, a different systems in our government, especially uh, the United States military, uh, when the face of the United States military is a war hero and a veteran, and when we um, put veterans and active duty servicemen and women on the pedestals that we do, it's hard to even broach the subject of reducing funding, even in areas where that funding desperately needs to be reduced. Uh, and so uh, in, in the same way, or I guess in the inverse way, uh, with the drug war, we have a system in place that makes it hard to question large scale reform that's necessary, because if you do that, you're hurting the good guys and you're helping the bad guys. And when you can boil an argument down to something that's that simplistic, it's hard to make the counter argument, which is always so much more nuanced. We've seen steps in the right direction, and those are models for how we go about breaking that lock that governments at all levels have had for decades. Uh, but it's going to take a lot more work, and it's going to take a lot more, frankly, ideological change. Uh, and that ideological change is not just being more liberal, because you have a lot of conservative Republicans who also see the benefits of large-scale criminal justice reform in this country, who oppose private prisons and things like that. Um, it's just a, a change in a, among a variety of groups of people to think differently about these this policy broadly and the specific policies underneath it uh, in order to get there. Well, historically speaking, we know through constitutional trial and error that prohibition organically creates a black market. With that said, um, we haven't talked much about the legalization of drugs. Um, is, that, is that a viable option in your view? So I'll say I, I have seen the benefits of the legalization of cannabis uh, in this country in terms of combating some of the really harmful effects uh, that have happened uh, as a result of the war on drugs. 
What I do know uh, is that we don't have evidence that the legalization of cannabis decreases cannabis use. Um, among some users, it can increase cannabis use, um, particularly for medical cannabis. Um, but uh, for other substances that are, are, are truly more harmful than cannabis is, if we're talking about you know, the use of heroin, the use of cocaine, other, other substances, methamphetamines, um, we're simultaneously concerned with the harsh effects of criminalization, but we're also hyper-concerned with the public health issues that surround it. And I think you can't have a conversation about the legalization of all drugs, which some groups in this country openly have, without simultaneously committing to the type of support for public health funding, particularly mental health and addiction funding, uh, that we would need to help convince people, to help incentivize people, uh, to help get people the treatment that they need to shift away from these extremely harmful substances, these extremely addictive substances, um, and have better health outcomes overall. John Hudak, Brookings Institution. I want to thank you, sir, for joining me once again on the Public Rallies. It's been an honor to be in conversation with you. Thank you. It's always a pleasure. Stay tuned as I speak with Professor David Herzberg as we continue our conversation on the war on drugs on the public morality. Welcome back. Continuing our conversation on the war on drugs, I am joined by Professor David Herzberg. Professor Herzberg is Associate Professor at the University of Buffalo and is the author of White Market Drugs, Big Pharma, and the Hidden History of Addiction in America. Professor David Herzberg, welcome to The Public Morality. Thanks for having me. You know, back in 1971, when President uh, Richard Nixon declared the war on drugs, it was probably safe to conclude he wasn't factoring the opioid epidemic uh, uh, or or how the the manner that prescription drugs has participated in the so-called war on drugs. Talk about that that over-the-counter influence over uh, that that has grown over the last fifty years. Yeah, it's a really interesting question because it's little known because the the uh, Nixon really forefronted the war against uh, the war against certain kinds of communities that were using drugs non medically. Um, but at the same time, one of the problems that uh, was happening mid 20th century was uh, a, a precursor of the opioid crisis, uh, a pharmaceutical addiction crisis. It wasn't with opioids. It was with uh, sedatives like sleeping pills and tranquilizers and with amphetamine, which were enormously popular pharmaceuticals at that time. And they were producing all kinds of uh, social problems uh, from being used in dangerous ways. So when that uh, he, he President Nixon really loudly proclaimed the war against drugs, a war against black and brown people and against hippies and leftist protesters. But the quiet part was that there also needed to be a regulatory war against an out of control pharmaceutical industry. And when you look back uh, at the early policies of this uh, supposed drug war, there were a bunch of consumer protection regulations designed to make use of sedatives and stimulants safer. Um, and, and because um, a lot of the war on drugs, um, I, th- I think the evidence bears this out, uh, had a lot to do with who more so than what. Um, wh- when we look at sort of the contemporary view, 
Um, are we still making that distinction between, say, OxyContin and street drugs because one is thought to uh, be distributed legally, thus the impact is seemingly bordered, uh, more benign, at least in our public consciousness? How do you see that? Absolutely. We, we, we draw that distinction. And one of the reasons why we're able to do that is that uh, pharmaceutical markets, I call them white markets, but in part because they're illegal and in part because they have largely catered to people with privileged access to the medical system. And, and those people in our country tend to be white or categorized as white. And those drugs are sold with consumer protections so that it's more possible to use them safely. Uh, and this is because policymakers believe, uh, you know, they, they are sympathetic to and see those consumers as having a right to use drugs that when used properly are really beneficial for people. Whereas on the other side of the line, the, the, the drugs that there is a war fought against, oftentimes they're the same exact substance, but they're substances that are, uh, that are declared uh, criminal and, as the, and um, they're sold through markets that aren't regulated because they're wholly illegal. And so it's much more dangerous to buy and use in those circumstances. And that's used as a justification to declare this war against them, which in point of fact, mostly ends up harming the consumers uh, of those drugs. When you look at our contemporary uh, conversation on, on the so-called war on drugs, um, is there a conversation that we're not having or, 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 or one that uh, f continues to fly under the radar in your view? Yeah, I think that we're not, we're not thinking enough about the damage that that division you just referred to between uh, medicines and so-called medicines and so-called drugs, which are often the same substances, we, we're not thinking about the, the harms that that division itself does, how it prevents us from having a sensible drug policy that is focused on protecting people from harm rather than, um, rather than uh, dividing people into worthy and unworthy, deserving and undeserving patients and criminals. Um, er earlier, uh, we, we, we spoke a little bit um, before offline, but earlier we, we, we had um, John Hudak of the Brookings Institution um, on, and I asked him if we were guilty of, of using an owner's manual that's 50 years old that's in dire need for an upgrade, and, and if, if you agree with that, that it is in dire need of an upgrade, what would those upgrades be in your view? Yeah, I would just, I, I would just add one thing. I'd say that this is a user's manual that's over 100 years old, and that it was built actually during the era when racial segregation was being built in this country and by some of the same people. And the overhaul would be to shift to just to uh, remember that drugs are desirable but dangerous consumer goods. And that uh, like other desirable dangerous consumer goods, the focus needs to be on consumer protections and safety. And just to think about how do we make it uh, most likely impossible for people who are going to use drugs to use them safely? And one model is those pharmaceutical markets, which sometimes are pretty safe and sometimes are a complete disaster. But we can learn from those policies because that's a situation in which we actually pursue policies designed to benefit consumers as opposed to the drug war, which is um, which is not designed at all to benefit the the people, frankly, that it's fought against. As you were giving your answer, I was I was just thinking that if I were uh, some individual on the street um, trying to uh, get uh, say illegal or say heroin, um, mm -hmm. 
as opposed to if I was a known celebrity, the chances of me um, getting more um, prescription drugs than I need is much easier. So even even that uh, uh, dilemma is 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 uh, distributed very very unequally, and, and we look at them very differently. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's why I brought up that word segregation because uh, in in um... In consumer markets, segregation is about who gets access to the best goods that is designed to, to do what they're supposed to do and who gets, you know, second class access. And in this case, you know, we drug markets still look like that, right? If you've got social status, you get access to drugs that are approved by the FDA, sold to you by someone who is, their job is to care about you, and you buy them from uh, pharmacies and, it, and you know exactly what you're doing. Whereas uh, people with less access to the medical system, and it's not just about insurance or having the money to see the doctor, it's also that uh, it's been shown repeatedly study after study that, uh, that black and brown patients, when they go to doctors, are, you know, the doctors are less likely to prescribe these drugs for them because of the stereotypes that have risen around addiction in our country. So it's really a question of how do you um, get, how do you dismantle these systems that really make it impossible for large numbers of people to get safe access to these um, products that are that are very important to us in a variety of ways. Mm. Professor David Herzberg, thank you so much, sir, for joining me today on The Public Morality. Much appreciate your insights. Thank you. Thank you. The Public Morality welcomes your comments. You can contact me at byron at publicmorality.org. That's byron, B-Y-R-O-N, at publicmorality.org. You can follow me on Facebook as well as Twitter. The archive broadcast can be found on iTunes, Spotify, Amazon Prime, and SoundCloud. Those listening to the Paul McRally on WSNC can now listen on its app. Using your mobile device, simply go to your application page, search WSNC 90.5, and click Open to listen from anywhere. And once again, I want to thank Elvin Jenkins and Michael Burns at WGAB in Huntsville, Alabama, for allowing us to broadcast the Pullman Corrality at their studios. The Pullman Corrality is produced at WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. For all of us at the Pullman Morality, I'm Byron Williams. <laughs>